Good morning. I can see Paul singing that song written by Andrew Peterson as he makes his way through the first eight chapters of Romans and stops in chapter 3 and says, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And chapter 6, recognizing that the wages of sin is in fact death. And then in chapter 7, exasperatingly, as we've said last week, crying out, What a wretched man I am. But then we come to chapter 8, and he writes this beautiful response to all of that that indicates that we are, in fact, free in Christ, and we do not have to live in that wretchedness, wreckage as well, because of Christ. So we are in the eighth chapter again today, beginning in verse 12. If you'll turn there, if you have your Bibles, if you don't, it's okay. You can follow along on the screen. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh because if you live according to the flesh you're going to die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live for all those led by God's spirit are God's sons daughters you do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. May God add God's blessing to the reading of God's word. It was, um, well, here we have Paul juxtaposing, as we talked about last week, putting flesh and spirit together. Now, this is not in reference to our bodies, again, as if our bodies are bad. I don't want you to hear that this morning. Your, Your bodies aren't bad. Rather, what is being kind of set apart as bad or dangerous or worthy of our consideration when Paul contrasts flesh and spirit is who or what our bodies are serving. So I ask you this morning, who or what are you serving? The text says, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live that life that we held up in prayer time that we are supposed to be living. Now, put to death is is a rather severe um, phrase here. Um, I believe what it means is to consider dead. Paul gives it the active voice, but it's to consider already dead. And I think about it with my, my kids, and I hope that that they will avoid those things that lead to death. Hope that I still will. Hope that I will consider those things that aren't of God dead because we know in those moments of temptation, in those moments of weakness, well, quite simply, that's not who I am. So I'm not going to participate in that. You, You say no because you've already said yes, right? Or you say yes because you've already said no. 
But here's the problem. Too many of us, and we talked about this last week, believe we can work out, we can work for our own salvation. And maybe we wouldn't couch it in those terms, but a careful examination of our life and our theology would reveal that at some level we are trying to please God with our behavior. I fall into this so easily. When I behave well, I give a little fist pump, pat myself on the back, say attaboy, and move forward believing we've pleased God, earned more favor with God. Or when we behave poorly, we feel shame, we scold ourselves, and we imagine that God has docked some points off of our cosmic scorecard or taken a couple of features or a couple of rooms away from our heavenly mansion. When we talk about salvation, it's important for us to remember that we are not so much saved from this world as we are saved for this world. So the the charge in Luke 10 that I mentioned in the prayer time to heal the sick, to proclaim the gospel is, is a poignant charge connected to why it is we are set apart, why it is we sign up as disciples, why we are called out by God to participate in God's mission in the world. Paul is is helping us understand that salvation is not about believing enough or, or claiming victory in our circumstances and expecting God to change those circumstances for the better relative to what the world may say they should be. Rather, Paul is teaching us that we are free from sin, death, free from condemnation back in verse 1. And this freedom is completely and it is utterly gift. And this gift is our only possibility of life. Now, hear me say that. If you don't understand it as gift, you will not live as Christ has called us to live. A life lived in the Spirit understands this distinction. To not understand this distinction is to be obligated to the flesh, our text teaches us, and to live according to the flesh and to serve other things than God. And these things may not be bad things. They may, be, they may not be outright sinful, but they become distraction. But the text is telling us that we are free, free to live, specifically free to live as what? God's children, heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Now, back in verse 4, Paul encourages us to walk in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. We don't walk according to the flesh, but we walk in the Spirit. Now, this is the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Holy Trinity given to us by God after Jesus' resurrection to comfort us, to guide us, to give us the peace that only can come from God. The Spirit is why we're not alone, y'all. Do you know that? I'm a Star Wars fan. I, I, I mean, the Force is not a terrible analogy here. It's where, it, it's where they came up with that. It's not a perfect analogy. But the Spirit is with us at all times. 
Jesus is with you. Hashtag never alone. We are never alone. Now in verses 15 and 16, Paul puts the spirit of slavery up against the spirit of adoption, spirit of sonship, spirit of daughtership. And the spirit of slavery, which, which pushes us back into this um, life of debilitating fear, it, it invokes memories for uh, the Jews who would be reading this or hearing Paul. Paul was a Jew. And so those who were part of the Israelite clan would have, would have heard this and, and thought about their own story, falling back into a spirit of slavery for the Hebrew people would have been, you know, during their time in the wilderness. And it was in the wilderness where they were led by God in the form of a cloud during the day and fire by night. Exodus 13, 21 and 22 says this, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. That constant presence, God with them. Now again, verse 15 says, We have not received a spirit of slavery. We we too are free from bondage as the Israelites were free from Egyptian bondage. But their exodus from the bondage led them to be in the wilderness for a long time, right? A long, long time. And the longer they were there, the more vulnerable they became to discouragement, to wondering if God truly was going to deliver them, to backtracking, to idol worship, Many of them even cried out and said, let's just go back to Egypt. At least we had, I don't know what they thought they had in Egypt, but they wanted to go back, some of them, because the wilderness, y'all, is where the flesh can lure us. It can trick us. It can seem the strongest. The places where our bodies seek to serve those things that the world pushes us to, away from where the Spirit is pulling us toward. It's precisely in the wilderness that we must cling to who we are, and whose we are, right? See, we're free, but we're not yet fully with Christ. Jesus is still to return. We are in this meantime that we talk about. So yes, we're free, just as the Hebrew people were free, yet they weren't fully in the promised land as they had been promised. But they were free, and they were together. And they were living in the promise that God was leading them to the promised land. Now, can you situate yourself in the reality of that? Can, can you feel that this morning? It's important for us as we look at this text, try to imagine what Paul was trying to get Gentiles and Jews alike coming together under the lordship of Christ, under this new way that had come about. To understand that, yes, we are free but things aren't exactly as God would have them to be yet, right? This can give us hope this morning when we realize that, yeah, things aren't fully as they are to be. But like the Israelites, we're together. And the image Paul uses to drive this home here is, is my favorite. It's one of family. Adoption into the family, the, the family of God. Now, I've been blessed in this regard. When I hear this analogy, I, I, my parents are, are great. I married a gal whose parents are great. 
So this analogy hits home for me. It doesn't for everyone. It may not for you. There may be severe heartache there. So I get that. And then for us all to just step back in in the reality of the world we live in to realize what foster care and adoption can mean for so many children. This analogy calls this to mind as well. I remember when I was... Years ago, I was, I was preaching. I made just a horrible mistake. I, I distinguished an adopted child as, or, or biological children as a family's own, as if different than an adopted child. And I knew it when I said it, that that wasn't right, but it was, it was buried within me, this idea that an adopted child is less than, and that is a lie. And the roots of that being a lie come straight from our New Testament scriptures, comes straight from the heart of God manifested in Jesus who teaches us the way that is we are all children of God, regardless of who we are, where we're from. That's why we can be kind to ourselves. Adoption's hard. Even as powerful and necessary as it as it is, we often we don't talk often enough about how difficult it is. Not the, not the least reason of which is the attitude that I just proclaimed that that I had at one time. And y'all, this language is not accidental by Paul. He is he is slipping this in into the Roman culture that he is writing to and within. And adoption had a strong strong place in Roman culture. Adopted sons were specifically chosen by an adoptive father to keep the family name going. This was not an inferior member of the family. This was someone specifically chosen. It's interesting. I didn't know this until recently, but you've no doubt heard the stories or the, the, of you know, the child born into a prestigious family with a high place in society, perhaps great responsibility, and they, they shun that responsibility or they don't want to to live up to it, whether fair or not. They act out. They rebel. (laughs) To just avoid that, many families of nobility in Rome, Roman culture, would have just gone out and picked somebody that would live up to the family name. This is near and dear to my heart. As growing up as a preacher's kid, I heard the opinions, you know, all the time about what preacher's kids, you know, could turn into. And I don't think I rebelled, but... It's a uh, stereotype still exists, doesn't it? Look at my kids. Just kidding. <laughs> you know, as these young men in Rome were being adopted into these families to carry on their name, they were motivated to do so in a worthy manner, reproducing and carrying on the father's character and responsibility in society. Now think about that. Paul is using that cultural reality and taking it and inserting it in the gospel to help those who are following and being formed by Jesus understand who we really should be representing, whose character we really should be emulating. We, too, should be motivated by God's great love for us to carry on the family name, to represent God well in the world, to, to love others well, to help draw others to the love of God. I think about that onus that gets heaped onto the preacher's kid. This feeling that 
everybody thinks that my dad or my mom is this super spiritual person and I'm supposed to be too. I push back against that for a couple of reasons. First, none of us are super spiritual, right? Paul says, what a wretched man I am. We have to approach this with some humility. I certainly do. I want this pastoral office in this church to be marked by humility first. We're just, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory, even the preacher. Not only are we full of sin, not only are we separated from God, we have all been called from that life, none of us more than anyone else. Called from that life into God's life, which we are actually able to live into and live out of. God's family. You, you see, those who are led by the Spirit of God, the text says, are daughters and sons of God. Adopted into God's family. And this includes anybody. It includes everybody. You just have to realize that God loves you and is calling you to this life in Christ, in the Spirit. There was a, well, there was a man in a life who were retired age, and they were eating breakfast up in the Smokies, the old story goes. They had gotten away for a while, and they noticed this disti- rather distinguished-looking white-haired gentleman who was kind of making his way around the restaurant to all the different tables and, and, and talking to people, and they kind of whispered to each other, I hope he doesn't come over here. We were trying to get away. But he did. And he sat down with them. He said, where are you folks from? They said, Oklahoma. He said, well, great to have you here in Tennessee. What do you do for a living? Well, I'm a preacher. And I teach at a seminary. Oh, so you, you teach preachers how to preach, don't you? Well, I've got a great story for you, the man said. And so he looked at him and he said, see out that window right over there? Just out that window is a big hill. And just over that hill... Not far from the base of that mountain, an unwed mother gave birth to her son. And at age six, the mother had such a difficult time that she placed the boy in an orphanage. And he had a hard, hard life in his early years because just about every place he went, the question that he seemed to be asked the most was, young man, who's your daddy? And at school, the boy often hid from his fellow students during recess and almost always sat alone at lunch because that question gave him so much pain. He avoided the local stores. He did attend church regularly, but his custom was to slip right out the back before the benediction so he wouldn't be stopped by anybody. But then when he turned 12, the church called a new minister and things toward the end of the service changed a little bit. And one particular Sunday, well, the first Sunday the minister was there, the benediction happened so fast he couldn't get out the door. And he got caught in the aisle. And he didn't get to slide out. And when he reached the exit, the minister was there. And not knowing the young man that yet, he put his hand on the young man's shoulder and he asked the question, Son, who is your daddy? And when some of the members gathered around, heard the question, they kind of cringed because they knew him well enough to know that he would be embarrassed by this question. And their sheepish faces revealed this to the minister, and he realized he probably made a mistake with that question. But using the discernment of the Holy Spirit, which is always with us, 
he quickly recovered. And he looked at that 12-year-old boy and he said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know who your dad is. I see it. It's an unmistakable resemblance. Young man, you're a child of God. I see it all over your face. The man said, that young man was never the same again. And whenever somebody asked him, who is your daddy? He'd answer, well, I'm a child of God. The man said to the couple, isn't that a great story? And the professor genuinely responded, yes, that is a great story. And as the man got up and let the couple be and returned to their meal, he said, you know, if that new preacher hadn't told me that I was one of God's children, I probably never would have amounted to anything. It's Tim Keller who says that religion says... I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Christianity says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's children. The way we can best remember that is if we remind one another. I didn't make a big point out of it, but under, you know, embedded in this text, in the whole chapter, is that we are together. That we are together, able to remind one another of this truth. It was uh, Dr. Herbert Gabhart was the first president at Belmont University. And when I was a student there, he was actually still, um, he was the chancellor emeritus at that time. Dr. Trout had already come, and Dr. Fisher actually replaced Dr. Trout, who went to Rhodes my freshman year. So this unique time when I started, when there were three presidents there at once, or one coming in, one leaving, and Dr. Gabhart still coming into the office every day at 8 a.m. And I had a chance as a senior to go sit with Dr. Gabhart in his office. This would have been just two or three years before he passed away and, uh, and talk with him. And I don't remember exactly what we talked about, but I remember sitting with him and hearing from him and hearing his wisdom and hearing him talk about Jesus. He was a pastor first. And he didn't tell me this story this day, but I've heard this story about him since then. And it speaks to the fact that I was invited into his office as a junior or a senior Nobody to visit with him, but he was walking across campus one day and he saw one of the custodians. And he, as was his custom, he struck up a conversation with this custodian. He did not know the young man yet, but he got to know him that day. And as the story goes, Dr. Gabhart asked him how he was doing. He said, I'm doing really well, Dr. Gabhart, and it's really good to talk with you. He said, well, Son, what are, you, what are you so glad about? <laughs> this young man said, well, I really love working here. I love my job. I feel like I belong here. And Dr. Gebhardt said, well, son, you don't often hear that from a custodian. I'm so glad 
to hear that. Why, um, why do you feel that way? He said, well, every day when I come to work, I really believe that this place values me. And I'm learning here that we are each other's. We are each other's. It's remarkable wisdom from a young man told by a brilliant college professor, president, pastor, who was still learning up until the day that he passed away. We are each other's. Folks, if you're going to know that you're a child of God, if you were going to live in your daughtership, your sonship, if you were going to be free to live in the spirit as you have been called to, you cannot do it without knowing that we are each other's. That's why Paul went straight for the analogy of family. Family is not individual. If you this morning feel like an individual, if you this morning feel like you don't have someone to talk to about the things that you believe are important, that you believe God is calling you to, about the ways that you are being set apart as a mustard seed. And I hope you'll plug in here. I pray every morning that God is creating the kind of small groups, Bible reading groups, whatever groups of folks who feel like they belong here, who believe that we are each other's. The gospel has to go forth. And if we are not living it, we won't send it that way. We have to help one another to do so. Let's pray.